Well, I think most of you know that <clears throat> I uh, have a bit of a hero in Charles Spurgeon. I seem to be able to quote him every single week of my life. And, um, but but th- th- there is a reason for this, of course. You know, he was a man that was uniquely gifted. Uh, he was a man that was just given great gifts of uh, preaching and um, a sharp mind, um, just a, a brilliant ability to reference material without indices. Um, it, just had a, it just had a fantastic memory. He also was very well used of God. At 19, had a church of uh, over 5,000 people and would preach upwards of groups of over 20,000 people. Just a, a very well used man. But what I particularly love about uh, Spurgeon is the fact that he was very funny. He, he had a wit and he had an ability to respond in situations that were just, sometimes I'm finding myself just laughing at it. I think this guy was so sharp. And, uh, and one of my favorite story, and I told you this about two years ago, but I like it so much I wanted to tell you again. Um, he, he's walking, and he had a great evangelistic ministry, walking down the street in London, where he pastored in the 19th century, and uh, and there was a man leaning against a, a, a lamppost that was clearly inebriated, just just really drunk. And uh, when he saw Spurgeon going by, he said, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And, of course, uh, Spurgeon turns around and says, no, why should I remember you? And he said, well, uh, well I'm one of your converts. And, of course, to that, Spurgeon said, well, you must be one of mine because you're not one of the Lord's. <laughs> and the, re- the reason I like that story is because Spurgeon was uh, a great evangelist and saw many, many conversions. And in his day and in our day, there's great confusion over what a conversion is. What's the genuine mark of a conversion? How do we know if we're converted? This is incredibly important for missions. This is incredibly important for um, the church, life in the church, as well as uh, just parents. And as your kids begin to make moves and have questions about spirituality, so it's a significant issue, and the story in our Gospel of Luke speaks to this specifically, about a great sinner coming to a glorious salvation. Now, of course, you've heard the songs related to this passage here, but I don't want you to miss the importance. This is probably the last personal encounter Jesus will have before his final week of ministry. And I think the passage is going to challenge you, or at least expand your understanding of what it means to be converted. Am I really converted? Is this person truly born again? That's what he's going to seek to answer. So let's read the passage together. And I just want to try to untangle just a few of these kind of twists in this story. In Luke 19.1, we read, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I I think the first twist is simply this. It's challenging us who, in fact, can be saved. I mean, I know most of us who would claim the title Christian know that God saves, and he saves people. But there's always that group, I think, that we look at that I don't know that this group can be saved. I don't know that this person can be saved. They're too hard, and they're in too difficult of a situation. And so I think Jesus is going to challenge, expand, perhaps, your mind as to who really can be saved. Now, the story, of course, picks up with him traveling through Jericho. Jericho was a town right near Jerusalem. In fact, it was a strategic town, not because of the, of the palm forests and, and the date trees and, and the agricultural um, wealth and value of it, but it was actually a gateway to the lands east of the Jordan for Jerusalem. So there's great commerce in the city, but there is also great commerce going through the city. It's here in Jericho where we meet this man named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus' name means pure, innocent, or righteous. He was none of these things. He wasn't any of these things. He was a tax collector. In fact, he was a chief tax collector. So he had people underneath him collecting taxes. So here's how it would work. If you were going to be doing business in Jericho or traveling through Jericho, you would have to meet these men and pay a custom or a tax on the goods that you would be selling or using or transporting. Now, these tax collectors, I want to remind you, they were hated by the populace. They were hated because, they were hated because these <clears throat> Jewish tax collectors were really funding the Roman rule, the Roman power. I mean, I mean it is like the French working with the German during the occupation in World War II. It's a collaborator. And, and, so, and not only that, but they had to charge a certain amount to meet the quota of the Romans, but then they would charge more to pad their own pockets. And so you see they're not just supporting the Roman power, but they're actually kind of enriching themselves on the backs of their countrymen. So you can imagine how they would be hated. And you could see being small in stature, great in sin, they're going to prevent him from actually seeing Jesus. So, so Zacchaeus thinks, okay, I cannot get through the crowds. I'll run down, see a sycamore tree. Sycamore tree is not like the North American, European varieties. It's, it's smaller. It has low-hanging branches, more like a mulberry tree. So he climbs up in this tree. It could be as high as 40 feet tall, among the leaves to see this Jesus. Of course, the story goes, Jesus passes by, he stops at the tree, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down, I must stay at your house today. Now, this gets the crowd talking. In fact, the murmuring and complaining, the Greek word kind of indicates it's like the cooing of doves. You know, everybody, you know, you just hear, you just hear everybody talking among themselves about, how can this man be going with a sinner? That's what Zacchaeus was. Now, a sinner is a technical term. They're not a sinner. I'm a sinner. A a sinner is a person who commits sins. But in this context, it's more of a technical term. It means a person that's far away and lost from God. In other words, it's not the average person that struggles at life every now and then. It's a person that is so far apart from God that they're almost unsavable. A sinner would be, uh, it's it's a position away from God. Actually, they are an enemy of God. 
It's a person that they would see, a prostitute, a heretic, or this tax collector. Now, why did Jesus choose Zacchaeus? I think it should be obvious to us. He's choosing somebody that would have seen, by the masses, to be the wickedest, the most likely to not succeed. He's a poster child for being unsavable. Jesus is, is choosing Zacchaeus so that all would know <clears throat> nobody is too great of a sinner to be saved. The, the grace of God extends even to the farthest and the greatest of sin. It should have been a great encouragement to people that even this man is savable. See, to the Jew at the time, they would have believed God saves, but they would have believed that God didn't want to save these types of people. That they were so far beyond the pale of God's grace that God didn't even want to save them. And Jesus is showing, I've come to save all men, even the wickedest of men. Let me remind you, and you can look at this later. In Matthew 18, another rich man had come to seek Jesus. He was the rich young ruler. He sought Jesus and said, how can I be saved? And Jesus said, keep all the commandments. He said, well, I keep all those. He said, then sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the scripture says that he left very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And so Jesus looked at his disciples, and he said, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to work its way through just the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. The disciples, as you and I would say, well, then how can any man be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. Man cannot save himself. Women cannot save. You cannot save yourselves. He says, but with God, all things are possible. And he's showing that here today, that all things are possible with God. So, so you know, I'm tempted to want to ask, if there are any of you here today, do you think you're beyond the grace of God? Have you sinned so greatly that you feel like God would have nothing to do with you? Have you repeated your sins, and have they been of such a nature that you don't think God would save you? Because this is for you. I mean, this story is specifically that no one here in this room can say, I'm beyond being saved. I'm beyond the forgiveness of God. I'm beyond the grace of God. Nobody can say that here. Every one of us here no matter to the degree that you have sinned. Zacchaeus and the story is for you. But for the Christian here, this is for us as well. I mean, who have you given up praying for? Who have you consigned into that area of untouchable? You know, do do you think the Lance Armstrongs or the John Edwards or, or the people that you know, maybe the antagonistic boss, the bitter neighbor, the wayward child, who have you just thought, you know what, <clears throat> they're, they're beyond saving. I mean, God can't even wake up that dead soul because this is for us as well. I mean, God has this public opinion. He, he really has an image problem. He needs some high-level New York kind of marketing agency that God has seen as mean-spirited, judgmental, and just a basic killjoy. And yet I see here God's very gracious. God's very kind. God's very merciful. To, to, to give us a son that would seek after a Zacchaeus type, and to save him, and to save him completely. God's very gracious to us, don't you think? 
I mean, what a kind God. The last encounter before Jesus goes to his death, he reminds people, nobody's outside my reach. No one. That's a twist. So think about those that you have consigned to the unsavable. Pull them back in. Begin praying for them, seeking them, for the Christian. But, but there's a second twist in here. Not just who can be saved, but how they're saved. See, I, I think in much evangelical rhetoric today, we hear that a person can be saved if they decide to follow Jesus. <clears throat> the responsibility is on you. You have to decide today. The focus is on you. Oh, you may have some trouble in life. You may have some trials in life. <clears throat> but ultimately, the decision sits in your camp. I hope you choose Jesus. You know, God helps those who help themselves. And so you need to kind of make the move to God. We even sang it in the song. We kind of feel we have to clean ourselves up, and then we can go to God. That's the way we think about, many people think about seeking God. Now, we don't know Zacchaeus' motivation. We're not told. It could have been that he heard Jesus was nice to tax collectors like Levi. Maybe he was just disgruntled with his life. Who knows? Maybe he was just curious. I remember going to all kinds of trouble when I was a student at the University of Maryland because the Pope in his Pope mobile was going to drive through town. <clears throat> and so um, I was not a religious man in my college days, and, uh, but I wanted to see the Pope because it was a famous character. And I thought, that would be fun. I saw the Pope today. So I went there. It could have been that. I don't know what his motivation was. But the twist in the story is that while Zacchaeus is making inroads to try to see Jesus, Jesus is pursuing him like a hound from heaven. I mean, you see that in the text, do you not? Zacchaeus thinks he's looking for Jesus, but Jesus is on a beeline for Zacchaeus, you see it because Jesus stops at the tree. Now, now, just envision the scene with me, would you? He couldn't get in. So you know there's big crowds around Jesus. And Jesus is leading up. He has a huge ministry. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed them. He has people swarming him. And he's walking down the road. You can imagine the hustle and the bustle and the noise of this big crowd of hundreds just following Jesus. He comes up. There's leafy trees everywhere, and he stops at that one tree and says, looks up at the man, hiding among the leaves, a short man in a big tree, high up. And he says, Zacchaeus. So not only does he stop and he looks, but he knows him by name. Now, how does he know his name? He wasn't, Jesus wasn't from Jericho. Very little do we know about any ministry in Jericho. So how would he have known that? And then he says these words, hurry up. There's a time dimension to God's plan. Do you realize that? There's a time dimension. Hurry up. God's plan is moving. Today is the day of salvation. We have a plan. God's plan is always moving forward. He says, but here's what's interesting. He says, I must stay at your house. Little Greek word that demands, <clears throat> that means a divine necessity. I must stay at your house. In other words, do you hear what he's saying? Jesus sees within the context of his mission to save the world, it is to save Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is in the plan of Jesus. It was an appointment set in eternity. It's really no different than when Jesus said, I must go through Samaria in John 4. Why did he have to go through Samaria? He had an appointment with that woman at the well. She would come to faith and help lead part of a city, those in a city to come to faith. So, so what we find here, the point, of the, the point of the story is that Jesus is seeking. Salvation comes at the divine initiative of God in Christ. 
So you think you're seeking, you're being sought. You think you're hunting, you're being hunted. He's the hound of heaven. He's doing it without asking you. Love what J.C. Raw wrote. He wrote, unmasked, he stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Sorry, unasked, he stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, Jesus invites himself to his house. Unasks, he sends into the heart of this tax collector the renewing grace of the Spirit and puts him that very day among the children of Abraham. This is very important for us, that he seeks us, and here's why. We can have a confidence in our conversion because he's the seeker. In other words, if, if the seeking was related to us and it was contingent upon us, I flag, <clears throat> I move back and forth on decisions. I'm classic for going into a catatonic state on a big purchase because I can tend to get buyer's remorse. Should I? Should I not? Should I? Should I not? But the, the confidence in our salvation is resting that he's the seeker. Notice what he says in this last verse. He says, for or <clears throat> because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Right before that, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. It is in the pursuit of Jesus that our confidence sits. He is the Son of Man. Remember, the Son of Man is a very important expression Jesus uses of himself. It not only relates to his identification with humanity, but the Son of Man would draw their minds back to that individual that would appear to God, written about in Daniel 7. And this Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, God on his throne, and God gives him a kingdom. And he says, you have all rule, authority, and power. God distributing his own glory and power and authority to this Son of Man. So Jesus says the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus has the authority and the glory of God. And he is out seeking, just as Ezekiel 34 promised, that God would seek the lost. So Jesus is saying, I'm God seeking the lost from Ezekiel 34. That's where our confidence rests. That Jesus is making salvation an actual event, not a potential. Jesus didn't die so that people might be saved. He died because he is saving people. It's a surety. It's a big, that's where our confidence rests. So, so where this leaves us off balance is how we're saved. We've often thought, well, I found God after this bad time in business. It challenges us. Now, no doubt God uses situations. He uses dissatisfaction in life. He uses despair. He uses a sense of guilt in sin. He may use self-centered desires. You may have been pursuing Jesus just because you feared dying. You feared what's on the other side of death. Or the guilt was too much for you. God may use these things, no doubt. But it's him that's drawing you. No one can come to me, Jesus said, except those whom the Father draws. To me, this makes me marvel over not just the generosity of God, but as John Calvin said, he says it's a marvelous act of God's kindness that he would do this to us. And do this for us. It really leaves me humbled that he would seek me. The arrogant Christian is really an oxymoron. It's like the jumbo shrimp. They don't go together. An arrogant Christian. How can we ever be arrogant? What do we have that we haven't received? That, that we thought we were seeking him 
with our mixed motivations, but the whole time he was right on our heels seeking us. How could we ever be arrogant before God like that? How can we be arrogant before each other? In the way he's distributed his gifts, in the things that we're able to do, the ministries we have, how can we ever be arrogant? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we be the most boastful people, but boastful as unto the Lord who has saved us? I, I, I'm humbled that God would seek me. There's no reason. I know there's no value in me that makes me a prize to the divine. It's just his unfathomable grace and mercy. Let's be mindful of that as a church. Arrogance has no place here. Humility is how we adorn the gospel in our lives. Okay, third twist. The third twist. And that is not just who comes to faith, who can be saved, and how they're saved, but the evidence of being saved. What's the evidence of conversion? You know, there's many people in our church... And in the evangelical world, that presume conversion. They presume a faith. Oh, they, they, have, they have reasons. If you say, well, well how, are you, how are you saved? Well, well, I prayed a prayer when I was 12. Now, I'm not just taking a swing at a prayer. I want you to know that in this country, in America, 80% of people believe that they're Christian. Now, 45% of Americans believe they're born again. That should cause you to scratch your head. They are one and the same. And the fact that people don't know it would be kind of, well, it'd be damning to their understanding of the faith. To be a Christian is to be born again. So there can't be two different groups. But everybody thinks they have been converted. Many people, 45% at least, say, yes, I've been born again. I've been converted. And their rest, their confidence, the evidence is having prayed or at one point made an intellectual decision to seek God or to affirm a certain set of doctrines or to ask for forgiveness or to just go from, I didn't believe in God, now I believe in God. This is going to challenge that view of evidence. Now, praying and all those things I just said, that may be part of conversion, no doubt. But what do we see with Zacchaeus? We see this radical transformation. We see this, this man go from being a corrupt tax collector to now giving half of his possessions to the poor, taking from the other half, and making restitution to those whom he robbed. Now, you don't know, did you notice when I read the passage, we don't know what he and Jesus said. They just say, we're going to go to your house today. He received him joyfully. The people grumbled. And then Zacchaeus repents before everybody. There is nothing said about faith. But here's what we do know. We do know that, that Jesus said, I must preach the gospel. We do know that the first thing Jesus preached was repent and believe. So I have no doubt in my mind, and I don't need it recorded for me, that Jesus would have engaged him over the coming kingdom that he was bringing, which led about to the repentance of Zacchaeus. So you can imagine, the can you not imagine that conversation around that table? There's so much great evangelism that can just take place around your kitchen table. Just, just speaking about the things of God, not just with your kids, with neighbors, with the Zacchaeuses of life. And But don't miss, you don't have to be a Billy Graham, you just need a kitchen table. 
You need a kitchen table, and you need to have a love for the one that saved you. That's all you need. That's all. So, so around this table, they're preaching. Jesus is preaching, declaring the kingdom to him, and of course he repents. We see it here. The evidence of his salvation is seen in his changed behavior. And Jesus confirms that by saying, today salvation has come to this house. But he says something else. He says this. He says, and he is also an heir of Abraham. He's a son of Abraham. Now, he was already of the lineage of Abraham because he was Jewish. But what's Jesus mean by this? He means that he's now a man of faith. He was always a Jew by birth, but now he's, he's now saved by faith. Because Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness, that, that we are now children of Abraham by faith. You see it in Romans 4, you see it in Galatians chapter 3. And the faith of Abraham was evidenced how? In his obedience to follow God by being willing to sacrifice his son. And you see the same works here in Zacchaeus. In fact, let me just remind you of the passage in James. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? There's a lot of people that claim to have faith. And guess what? They've got nothing. They have no deeds. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James says, I will show you my faith by what I do. This is a big issue here. The evidence of salvation in Zacchaeus' life, number one, he had affections for Christ. You see, perhaps he went by curiosity to see him. But when he steps up, he says to Jesus, look, Lord. I give half of my possessions to the poor. He's addressing Jesus. He's not even addressing God. He's addressing the one who has brought him salvation. And he confesses to him, look, I'm going to give half of it away. I'm going to make restitution with the other half. He's proclaiming to Jesus, you sense a reverence in the idea of Lord, Master. You see this love for Christ. He loves the one who has brought this message to him. He's loved the one who's bringing a kingdom. You know, in the South. When people speak about being converted, they do often use born again. It's a good expression from John 3. But about 100 years before born again became popular, the expression in the deep south about being converted is this. I have been seized by a powerful affection. That's how people would explain their conversion from darkness to light. That's how they would explain how they went from being a non-believer to a believer. I've been seized by a powerful affection. I have a love for Jesus I didn't have yesterday. I have a growing love and passion for the Savior. That's evidence of conversion. That's some of the evidence we see with Zacchaeus. Secondly, you also see this generosity. Now, he says he gives half of his wealth to the poor. Now, the law required maybe only upwards of 20%, maybe a little bit over 20%, depending upon how you add up the corners of your crops not being trimmed and, and being given to the poor. But he gives half of it to the poor. Now, what's interesting about this is that you know when conversion has taken place because the things that once bound me as pieces of idolatry, I now repent of. For example, he made his life on making money. He found happiness and security in wealth. So what does he give away? The wealth. He changes the things that once were his gods. That's the, that's the picture of conversion. It's this generosity because he had lifted up finances and money and comfort to a place of worship. He says, okay, now you're gone. I'm going to worship the right God. That's evidence of conversion. Those once besetting sins, now we turn away from. In fact, I would say even more, particularly for us in America, you know, generosity 
is a huge mark of conversion. To go from being tight-fisted to now being free with all that God has given us. You know that they're converted because now they have God. They're free to give away much. I remember when Carol mentioned to me, I, I started making move back to the faith, although God was pursuing me. She said, you know, I think we need to tithe. And I said, well, you need to think again. <laughs> we can't afford to tithe. And, and just God began moving this desire to be generous. It was something to challenge a CPA on how we're spending our money was just hazardous for her. But, but she was right. And we move forward. So, so th- that's a mark, this generosity, not just with money, with yourself and with your life. We see it in Zacchaeus' life. Do you see it in yours? Do you see an open-handedness with God? This isn't a money-raising funds for the budget. This is si- simply evidence of being converted. But, but then a third thing you see is this restitution and repentance. From the other half of his wealth that he just gave away, he's now going to pay fourfold. Now, the law required return what you took plus 20%. He gives four. without compulsion, joyously. He wants to make sure and make amends horizontally with all those he sinned against. Remember now, our spirituality is not this vertical transaction where now I'm right with God, I'm good to go. There's a horizontal implication of that vertical transaction. So when you're converted by God, relationships change horizontally, and he was doing that. I love the story of a man, and this has happened years ago in Ethiopia. A corrupt businessman, wealthy, came and was converted, was born again. And so he tried to make amends with those with whom he knew he had cheated. He took an ad in the paper and said that he's been converted to believing in Jesus Christ and anyone that feels he had defrauded them to come see him. He took an ad in the paper to make it right, to horizontally fix those relationships He ruptured over his greed. So, I mean, this is significant evidence. See, the twist is the evidence should be bold and pronounced. Do you presume faith if you think you're converted? Is it evidenced by the transformation in your life? See, I I think we have erred. We've intellectualized the faith. We've separated the mind from the heart. We get the concepts of Christianity down. It doesn't seem to bleed over into the heart. It's a very dangerous thing to separate this idea of faith in life. In fact, not just intellectualizing it, I think we've accepted the false notion that you can be converted and horizontal relationships don't change in your marriages. So those of you who are converted, do you see the difference in your marriage? Is there reconciliation? Is there seeking forgiveness? Is there grace uh, with your parenting? I, I, I mean, are, are, you, are you training your children in the way of God? Are you involved in their spirit? Are you just treating them like a beast in terms of feeding and clothing and caring and yet not looking over their soul? In business, are you doing things ethically? Can you be a Christian and maintain unethical business practices? Can you maintain posturing? And playing the politics of the office as a Christian, can you do that, really? I mean, doesn't the transforming work of Christ in our lives just cause this change to occur in all these relationships? Isn't that our evidence? I think it is. 
So there's these three twists. Who can be saved? There is no man or woman that is beyond the arm of God to reach in Christ. And how can they be saved? It is by the grace of God, the initiating grace of God as Christ pursues you. And what's the evidence of being saved? Well, change. Not just an intellectual change, but there has to be a moral change. Your marriage should be different. Your relationships should be different. That, that horizontal impact of the gospel must be there. Or I would ask you, are you presuming faith? So this is what, what, what do we do? Jesus has come to seek and to save the law. So here's what I, I would encourage us to do. First, I want us to look inward. And I always want to start with ourselves. Can you say with uh, John Newton, I was once lost and now I'm found? I, I once was blind, but now I see. Do you really believe that at one point you were absolutely apart from God, hell-bound outside of his grace? Do you believe that? And, and have you come to a place where you have trusted the entirety of your soul upon the one who has lived and died and been raised again? If you have not, then I would encourage you to ask someone next to you, about what it means to truly be converted. Or come forward later after the service. Or speak to Adam or Ray or speak to Nick or an elder. Or like I say, people next to you. They should be able to speak to you about this. But for the Christian, if you say, yes, I've been found. I have been found by Jesus. And I trust myself to him. Then the next step is don't look inward any longer, but look outward. As the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost, so we now, like the one who has found us, we now seek the lost, not to save, but to serve with the gospel. That we have a responsibility, I would say a privilege, to walk in the steps of the one who died for us and to speak to these things. So here's what I propose to you. I know that the word evangelism is kind of passe now. It's kind of frightening for people. I would just ask you to do a couple things. Number one, would you pray with me that God may cultivate a heart for the lost? I just want to start there. Evangelism that is an event or it's a program doesn't work for me. There has to be that heart. Our our desire to seek the lost has to flow out of a heart of love for Christ. So number one, just let's cultivate a heart for the lost this year. And and how we do that is this. Number one, we want to consider the plight of the lost. I want you to think about what it means to be lost. If you can't think of it, then you probably haven't been saved because you can just go back in your life. The despair, the sadness, the loneliness. Or even when I consider the neighbor and his plight, he has everything, he's happy right now. But in my mind, he's made in the image of God. He's satisfied like a well-fed dog. He's more than that. He deserves more than that. He should want more than that. So let's consider the plight of the lost. Consider the end of their road. Let your heart break over those people not finding the satisfaction of God. Number two, consider the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is able to save. Christ is glorious, powerful. Break through the hardest of hearts. Consider, thirdly, the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit can wake up dead bones and bring them to life. I would ask you to consider the satisfaction of the person finding Christ. Think through how their life would change if they were to come face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. Consider your own conversion and how happy you are now. And let that move you to have a heart for the lost. 
So that's cultivating the heart for the lost. Then secondly, I would ask you to engage the lost. Now, I don't want you thinking, hey, we've got to get into ministry. No, 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 don't do the ministry thing yet. Just begin in your family and in the relationships that you have. Remember, your words on the gospel are going to fall on ears who get to see your life. That's important. might be scary for some of you. But that's important that they would see your life because you are more. Your words are believable if your life is in accord with them. And so begin, even if it's one conversation a week, that you will intentionally engage a person in a conversation over the things of God. It may initially be awkward. But again, if it's birthed out of a love for the lost, if it's birthed out of an appreciation of what he's done for you, it won't seem as awkward. But try to be intentional, not just with your children, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. I often ask people, well, I'll pray. can I pray for you on that? It's just an introduction into a conversation that has now spiritual overtones to it and not just temporal things. I'll ask, well, well you know, I'll ask them to pray for them. Or well, Carol and I are trying to have, on a regular basis, people in our home that don't know the Lord. We want to invite sinners into our home to have a meal with us, just to speak to them about the things of God. May not the first conversation but just engaging in conversation. Would you do that with me? For 2013, that we would be more sensitive to being missional. What I mean by missional is that out of the overflow of our joy in God, we are bringing forth a greater passion to bring the word to bear in people's lives. And then when we begin doing this locally, then I think we're going to be much more effective globally. See, a lot of people want to jump right into global missions without doing local missions. I think you're putting the cart before the horse. We want to do and practice and be missionally minded in a local context, which gives birth to a greater passion for the global context. So let me pray for us right now, and, um, and then uh, we'll start a season of prayer. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I'm asking you in relationship to the word and in the context of the corporate nature of this church, let us give thanks to God for Christ. Let us perhaps confess our, our lack of desire or even concern for the lost. We, we can petition for greater grace that we might be effective in engaging the relationships that we have. And, and you want to speak loudly so that we can hear you and agree with you before the throne of grace. So I will start us and then um, an elder uh, Jack will close us in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace you have given to us in Christ. We are overwhelmed that you would seek and that you would actually save us. And Father... Cause us now to overflow with joy that you would have done such a kind work for us all the while we were undeserving, perhaps not even looking for it. Thank you for your grace.